Welcome to The Open Bell, a podcast for trumpet players by trumpet players and a cornet guy. I'm your host, Bill Stoman, and I'm joined by my good friends and fellow trumpet geeks, Joey Tartell and Brian Appleby-Weinberg. This episode of The Open Bell is brought to you by the World Trumpet Federation. Now you can simply go to worldtrumpetfederation.com for all your trumpet needs. The World Trumpet Federation is designed to provide one-stop shopping for trumpet players and teachers of all ages. There are no annual fees, firewalls, or other barriers between you and the most current, helpful trumpet info. Instead, the World Trumpet Federation is committed to offering an honest, open, inclusive dialogue about all things trumpet and trumpet teaching. In addition to being the home of the Open Bell podcast, the World Trumpet Federation also has its own YouTube channel. Stay tuned for more details or just go to worldtrumpetfederation.com. And by the National Trumpet Competition. Founded by Executive Director Dr. Dennis Edelbrock, the National Trumpet Competition is in its 26th year providing the premier competitive musical experience for trumpet players and trumpet ensembles. And after 20 years in the Washington, D.C. area, the National Trumpet Competition now travels to locations across the United States as it gathers momentum to serve trumpeters for years to come. Go to www.nationaltrumpetcomp.org for the latest details for NTC 2021, scheduled to happen in beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. And now a little about the show. We essentially have three segments, warming up, a couple things, and no offense. We'll use these segments to cover information that Joey, Brian, and I think is important. Gentlemen, shall we? This is a segment we call Warming Up, and it gives us a chance to ease into the show by talking about some things that are on our radar. Brian, what have you got for us today? Well, so this week, in addition to talking about Cornet, I'd like to talk about this, uh, this new publishing company. It might not actually be that new. It's just new on my radar. It's this uh, place called Q Press, and it's out of Canada. Oh, yeah. and what they're doing is yeah. they're buying um, the rights to publish um, out-of-print material, um, and they're just getting out-of-print material and tons of it, um, and then publishing it in PDF format. Um, so you can get it for your iPad or your phone or for your computer. You can print it if you want. You're buying it. It's not that expensive. It's a reduced price because I assume it reflects their lowered cost for not actually having to print volumes of this stuff. But um, they have like the Charles Cullen complete volumes. So uh -huh. all of the stuff that he ever wrote in one uh, compendium. Um, they have like the Mancini quartets. So you can just buy those in PDF and you just have them instead of have, I mean, I have them in my office, but um, if students don't have them and they want to put them on their, their iPads, uh, a whole Vacchiano series. Um, there's a whole bunch of um, excerpts, uh, Favos um, versions of a whole bunch of orchestral excerpts with annotated um, and, uh, so it's just really cool to see this, all this material that hasn't been around for a long time yeah. um, back so out and available. I've seen the ads. I haven't actually clicked on to pursue it. So you've actually bought some of the stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, it's typeset really well, looks really good, downloads okay. really easy. Uh, it's not expensive, 15 or 20 bucks. For bigger ones, um, for larger volumes, you know, you can pay, spend 100 bucks on. on did, they re did they reset some of these things? Are they, are they new or is it just basically the, the scanned reset old stuff? They have reset some some of it. Some of it's just scans of old stuff, but stuff that needs to be redone, they've they've redone it. 
I don't know so, how much editing they're doing. Yeah, big question. So you actually have purchased some of it. Uh, do you have to pay in Canadian, or will they take U.S. dollars? <laughs> Just do it on Just, PayPal. I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's 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 really it's really cool. And, so do you uh, have uh do you have do you both have a lot of students who use the iPad who like convert their stuff to to i to PDF and use their iPads for lessons, or are they bring in books? I've had a big switch in the past couple of years that yeah. students are going more and more digital. And it makes sense because, boy, when I first got here to IU, I used to watch these kids walking around. They have a case, you know, they're carrying a couple horns on one shoulder and they're kind of carrying all their books in the, you know, they look like turtles, you know, kind of going around. Right. And I'm thinking, oh, there's just future spine disease and spine problems going on. Uh, right. So it just makes it easier, especially with the iPad Pro. I know we're all big fans. Yes, uh, we are. Being, being the right size so it's not so small that it's hard to get to. I've seen a ton. And a lot of the a lot of the things that are essentially public domain at this point are easy to find uh, and, and, and in PDF form already. Yeah. So then pretty much easy. You just have your iPad, you make a little folder, and you're good to go. Yeah. So a, a total aside question, because I do love the idea, and I love having it all in one place. Um, how are you guys with learning stuff, and in particular memorizing stuff off the iPad? It's fine with me. You're okay uh, with that? Yeah. Is I mean, you guys know I'm working off print. Just you, old enough, I think I'm probably. You, you find it different. <laughs> it is yeah. like I, I don't know, and I'm I'm a big right in the margins guy. Like even in my books and stuff like that. And so, if I'm if I'm and I know you can notate, I know you can mark with four score and all that stuff. It's just different coming off that screen than it is paper for me. Interesting. And you guys know I've been working with those Blackbinder guys since we got going. Uh, yep. Because that one, if you can get into the right format. Uh, works yeah. really well, and the notating, the pencil works really great. You can just write on it, and you can use it that way, and then it scrolls, so then you're not even worried about page turns. So Which I haven't cool. had, it is cool, yeah. it's, it's really nice. That's cool. But I haven't had, uh, I don't notice, I mean, it's a, it's very convenient. I started, the first time I used my iPad on a gig was with, I first got my iPad, and I went out to do the Boston Brass Christmas show. So they sent everything out in PDF, and I thought, let's check this out. And I show yeah. up, and, and Jose's sitting next to me going, oh, that's so cool. And then yeah. a couple years later, I show up, and he's got the iPad. And then I got the <laughs> iPad Pro. And I said, oh, you've got the amateur. So and he, so when I showed up a couple years ago, <laughs> I actually subbed for him. They were doing a halftime show at the University of Oklahoma, a, f a marching band. So we show up for the rehearsal, and I walk in, and they're like, look what you've done to us. They're all, they're all on iPad Pros now. That's what yeah. they do. Right. That's the way to go. And I think, too, like if you think about trying to play around a music stand, how much better it just takes up so little space. So if you yep. just have the stand with that in the center – killer absolutely yeah, i just need i just need to do it more to try to get used to it i guess because it's it's all going to go that way so it's, q press brian you like it you did yeah it. i'm totally into it yep q press i gotta check it out cool joe do you want to go next or do you want me to uh warm up a little bit i'm ready to go in all right, all right let, me, let me ask you guys a question do you think it matters when you practice because i know we talk a lot about what to practice and how to practice how much of a difference does when you practice make? Thoughts? Yeah, I, several. Brian, go ahead. You look like you're, this is the most ready matter, you've ever been matter to, to answer what? a question. No matter, <laughs> matter to what? Your schedule, getting it in, or to your face? Like your, uh, I just think it's a matter of, of making improvements and growth as a trumpet player and musician. Yeah, I do actually. Um, I think it's important to practice things you're trying to change about your playing first thing but does first thing mean eight in the morning can that be two in the afternoon does that mean is that different um just whatever first thing is for you um and for a lot of people first thing means early for me it means early 
super right. early. But that's more what you're practicing. I'm, I'm more concerned of when in the day. Do, yeah. do you think that makes any yeah, difference? When in the day. I think I think it really depends on the person for when you're most productive or most active. Like so, so somebody's a morning person and they they can be really productive and focused. Then, but other people are night owls. And so, but but I will say this: I have shifted since we started to do the thing, which you know the thing footnote trademark Joey Tartell Industries. <laughs> the we'll thing, come back to that. We'll come back to that. It's going to be a whole show. We've got a whole show planned on the thing. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be um, huge. It's, it's going to be amazing. I shifted from being a late-night practicer to a morning practicer. And mm. I have to say there's a lot of things I like about it. It's become a non-negotiable. So I know I'm going to – it doesn't get pushed around. There's not a chance it gets left out. So I'm going early in the day. I so think that's more effective. Here's what made me th think about it. As you guys know, I'm a morning person and have been for a long time. You're a ray of sunshine. I am. <laughs> I was bright, shiny day to start every day. You know, uh, you know even when I was out on the road, I would, I would kind of get up and, and practice in the morning. But when, uh, when I'm during the school year, when I'm finished end of my day and I go home, dinner time, five, six, whenever it is, I'm done, which means mm -hmm. I don't come back and I'm not playing at night. So a lot of the time, I'm never playing after six o'clock. But when you get to performances, most of the time performances are during the evening. So should I also be playing in the evening because I'm going to be performing in the evening? Like, is that important or is it not important? And I'm not sure the answer to that. I think you should do some playing at night. If that's when you have to play something big, you do need to, there, for a lot of people, I think, if their face isn't used to playing at that time of day, that's gonna be a big demand for them. So See, like in the, brass in the brass band yeah. world, if if they somehow change the schedule and you have to be available to play your contest piece in the morning, well, most brass banders are at, are at work all day, take a couple hours to grab dinner and then come to rehearsal. And the only time they play is at night. So to get them ready to play a contest piece at nine o'clock in the morning, that's a that's a big ask. They have to practice that. Yeah, that I, well, I'm, I'm thinking now the way you ask that now, if you think about like I reverse engineer a schedule for a student leading up to a senior recital, right? The recitals at one o'clock on this week. So what are we doing the week? What are we doing the day before the day of the week before the two weeks before? And ultimately that week before when you're trying to go to when that performance is going to hit in the cycle, you have them trying to do their run throughs at the time the recital would be that weekend. So I think there's something to that. I think there is. Could be. Yeah. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. I, I, think I don't think it's something we often think about in the big picture. We don't. So when we do this episode on the thing, now this is going to have to be part of that. We're going to have to come to an answer, a conclusion on this, because well, yeah, I mean, I just for I mean, for me, this is always just sort of selfish. Is that I want to start the day, like you say, a non-negotiable. I need to practice, you know, and, and so I need to practice. So I need yeah. to practice in the morning. If I do it first thing, then nothing else can get in the way of that because nothing else is scheduled at seven a.m. Yeah. So it wasn't so much yeah. that it has to be in the morning as that's when it worked scheduling wise and has turned into that thing for me yeah i mean it, that's protected space in your day i will say when I, I i didn't like the morning thing at first because i just don't i feel like i could get an easier start play better a little later in the day like physically speaking but yeah. the time goes away right as the day goes and there's more people you know more s folks coming to your office if you're practicing in school or everybody's waking up at home or whatever it happens to be um that gets it gets harder again to fit fit the time in. Right. 
but yeah, life gets in the way. It really does in the way of trumpet, and that's never a good. That's not a good thing. <laughs> well, not when it's a non-negotiable. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that's fascinating to think about the gigs you play, really. But you've not. There wasn't anything that happened in one of those, or or any sequence of events that made you say, "Man, I should maybe I should play at night." I'm like tired when I get here, or I'm. No, I've just started thinking about it recently. Yeah. But you learn new stuff in the after, late afternoon, early evening, right, Joey? Before you leave. Generally, You're yes. Working yeah. on new stuff. It's like four or five o'clock. Yeah. Or you know, if students, if I have a hole where the student's not there, I'll take an hour during that time. And yeah. Well, I would say this. I think a positive thing for the rest of the trumpet community would be if you start to overthink things. I think. <laughs> well, you, I, uh, you know I me. I'm freewheeling. I I rarely give anything some serious you, thought. Right. But I think you overthinking and perhaps paralyzing yourself as a player could be good for other people's More work for the rest accounts. Of us. <laughs> I'm on it. You're all over it. All right, Bill, what do you got for us? What I got, I've been thinking about asking the guys this question. I don't, I don't know that we've ever talked about this, but I want to know what are your favorite trumpet solos? Trumpet. Let me say it again. I'm going to back up and say trumpet solos, not cornet. Uh, either with piano or, or you know, or with band, orchestra, whatever you want. What are your faves? Wow. Just you don't anything have one, at all. You don't have one locked and loaded. Like, you get to pick one piece. You give one more opportunity in your life to play a solo on stage, either with an ensemble or with piano. This is the one you're going to go to, no question, your favorite. Man, I got to tell you, I'm not even sure where to start on that. Because, you know, for me, of course... Uh, I put everything in little categories. So if we're talking about with piano, I have some things that I kind of go to. Okay, we can or if do it's that. With a, or if it's with a concert band, or if it's with an orchestra, or if it's with a okay. jazz band, or you know, there I got there's like categories, and there's so much, so, so much great music out there. So let's go with piano, right? Because you got students who are picking pieces for NTC competition and and all that kind of stuff. Let's let's go with that. Trumpet sure. and piano. Trumpet and piano. Brian, what do you think? He's thinking about cornet pieces. You know what he's thinking. <laughs> I had to throw out all my cornet pieces. No, I have I have a trumpet piece locked and loaded. What do you got? Wow. An Esco legend. Oh, I think I think it's our best. Piece. I think it's our best piece. Wow, best piece. Yeah, our I think best, it's our best piece. I think it's our best piece. Oof. For trumpet and piano. Really? Yep. Wow. It, I, it's a great piece. I agree. It's a great piece. Yeah, it's a great piece, but not. I don't know that it's our best piece. Well, I mean, it's your opinion. I think you picked it because you play louder on your C trumpet than on your B flat. <laughs> I can Is play that possible? On my C trumpet. <laughs> Is it possible? Really? I do have it, quibbles with, with how people play in Esco. And I've mm. actually, I texted with Joey a few weeks ago about yes. the, the first fast section. Yes. Right. Um, that it should be more cadenza-like? Buddy. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Wait. I don't want to hear Bill play. You want to be more strict, more strictly in time. I take a long time to play an Esco. The, the dotted, the dotted eight sixteenth figure. I want to be a dotted eight sixteenth figure. Oh no, I'll do that. Measure. I'm going to stylize that. I'm going to open that bad yeah, boy. Yeah, that's up. what they do. Yeah, uh -huh. unfortunately. And the last note isn't the last note supposed to be six full beats long? Right. There, I, there's no fermata. It's just six beats. Yes. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Are you finding wow, people play it too Nesco. short or too long? Most people play it too short. Yeah, they don't get all the way to six? No. Or through one. six, actually? Get through six to the next downbeat. No, they don't. No, you hear them go, that's enough. I'm <laughs> and good. I'm out. And that's I'm out. what they do I'm at good. the end. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Just lose, lose focus. But I, I, I love the piece. I, I love it as a, as a, a piece of music. 
um, and and a piece for trumpet that has everything that is required of us as musicians. Um, Spoken like a true brass bandsman. I think it's a great piece of music. Yeah. Okay, then <laughs> I, I'm not sure this is my answer, but if you're talking about in the same category, relatively short, good piece of music, shows off an awful, awful lot of stuff, where do you come down on Honiger and Trotta? Oh. I like Honiger a lot. I think it costs a little too much. <laughs> for what it's for what that's it's a worth. Great, and, that and, is a great way to put that. And that boy, point. if you talk about having quibbles with how lots of people perform that, wow, I get driven crazy uh, listening to people play that on college auditions a lot because I think they're figuring out how to get through it, not how to make music on it. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, if if you can't make music with that piece, just don't play it. Yeah, yeah. it's on a lot of lists. Yes, well, it's on and, a lot of lists because it shows off. It, it requires so much. Sure. Right, but but like you were just saying, like I'd rather hear someone make music. Isn't this a separate the the men from the boys kind of piece in that regard? It's Players absolutely a wheat from chaff. Absolutely, that's a much better yes. way to say that. Thank you. Yeah, it absolutely <laughs> will we'll draw a line. Bro. I yeah. know. I was trying to. I really failed. I, what can <laughs> I say? It, it will absolutely draw a line, and you know, you must you must be able to step over it to play this piece, and a, a lot of people just can't but it i do think it's a great piece of music yeah interesting so that would be your pick i'm not sure if that's my and, pick and you would do it on the f alto flugelhorn, <laughs> flugelhorn. <laughs> obviously <laughs> what, wait can i pick trumpet and organ can i pick trumpet and organ instead of trumpet trumpet okay then i know what i want i want i want the the telemon telemon concerto i love that oh that's a great piece it's lovely, you know, yeah. uh, you know, that first movement, which is, you know, like one minute long and one of the hardest mm. things we've got just because <laughs> yes. people don't know, seem to know how to pace it. But also the, the other two uh, fast movements are really fun, lovely, they are fun, great pieces to play. I, that was probably I would go with that as right. sort of a, if I got one more shot to just step out on stage and play, I would love to go out and play that piece. Yeah, I like that. That's good. What, what do you, you All right. Well, you guys Cannon? didn't No, please. <laughs> Really? That, you would never. I don't think you're going to get this. I don't think you would get it if you Rose had variations. Guess, shed. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a cornet piece. <laughs> it's a cornet piece. So that Bill plays Brett, on trumpet. You're going to really appreciate this. No, I play that on cornet. Shishedrin? No, that's a string piece. Beach four variations. Oh yeah. Oh, that, that is a good piece. That that's is absolutely. The best. That's the best. You piece. know, you have to Come tongue on. in that, right? I do for some reason it works. I'm and not sure how it piece, happens. Right? Yeah. I play it on cornet. That's yeah. what I love about mentioning it. That's why. Oh, it's... <laughs> <Man>. yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do. That's I. I remember I played it years ago, and I thought um, I think I did it for I don't know, probably doing master's degree or I don't know something. And I remember thinking I'll never play this on trumpet again. <laughs> I'm gonna play this on cornet. It's way I'm... easier on cornet. Oh, it sounds better. Every, all the nuance is better. Yeah. Right. And he says trumpet or cornet. So. Sure, but I I love that piece. I think it's beautiful. What about slightly underplayed, but in, maybe in the same ballpark of that Francais? That one has a high price of admission. Really? Which is a, I think so, because I think it's really there. It is on Brian's stand. I have stand. it right here. Yeah, yeah right here. I like that yeah. piece. I love you know, piece. You know, yeah. I think you were playing that yesterday afternoon. I heard it. <laughs> Echoing down the turnpike, 150 miles away. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "You guys hear that?" Um, I think I love the piece. It's really great, but man, it's hard for the musical return. Sure, yeah. okay. You hang yeah, out there for that. a while in the second movement. That's a yeah. lot of 
lot of that's a big price to pay. Rubato I'm in the middle of ten days off playing the instrument. Right. So I I did not play France yesterday. You're gonna trade one set of bruising for another. Is I'm not allowed happen. to play that for a few more weeks yet. I don't think. So any rubato in the first movement of uh, France, or do you play it straight through? A little bit. Yes. Just right. Just a little. Very little though. Not too much. You get a you get a little bit of leeway, but you don't get to you don't get a lot. No, it's just enough to say you know. A little oh, of the right. Hardenberger version, right? You get right. you get to, you get to make some music there, but you do not get to uh, make it easier on it? yourself and turn it into a different piece. <laughs> oh this no, is true. no, that's how I play Inesco, <laughs> <laughs> which is not okay. <laughs> but I would never do that to Francais. I want to now. I want to play Inesco for Brian so he can. I can. I don't think it's going to be as far away as you think it is. Then again, maybe it will okay. be. Amazing. Hey, I like that. Those are good things. Wait a minute. So, if you had to pick with, if you had to pick with orchestra, what would you say? Or band? Let's do that. Band. For our huge band director following, I know we're going to build. What solo piece with band? Wow, there's so much good stuff. And actually, this is where, and I, and I hate to even say this out loud, this is where cornet solos really work well. <laughs> like I the, knew it. It's I true. The it. cornet solos with band, they, they're good and they work really well. You know, originally written for and work well with. They're good show pieces, often good encores come out. You play any of those things and they work really, really well. Yeah. Carnival of Venice or Napoli for me. Yeah. Oh, I do love Napoli. Napoli's really good. Yep. Yeah. I'm gonna go man, I'm gonna have to narrow this down and I'm gonna I'm gonna think out loud while I'm doing it because I have this new piece in case you I'm gonna show this on the podcast. Um, hey, is know, that your CD, Bill? It's my new CD, isn't it? Lovely on the podcast. Is that Parable? Um, is that what that's called? Parable. That's exactly how you pronounce it. Yeah. It's one of the better options. Um, yeah. So the thing that Jim Colonna wrote for me, Marietta's lead, the Corn Gold, is a lot of fun to play with winds. But I love doing Portrait of a Trumpet, Anestico. Yep. And I love doing rose variations. I know you already picked on me about that, but that's so much fun to play with band. Well, oh, my gosh. You know, John Rommel and I, a couple of years ago, Tony Plogue called John and said, hey, I've got this double concerto for orchestra. If you guys program it, we'll write it for band. <gasps> and so John and I did that. We did the premiere of the band version here oh, at IU. Yeah. It's a great piece. JC did it at his festival with Pete one right. year with Pete Vaughn. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, three movements. You know, the first movement is, uh, is C, both on C trumpets. The second movement is both on flugelhorns. And the third movement is uh, B-flat pick and G trumpet. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a great piece of music for band. Right. No alto yeah. flugelhorn in that. I, well, I didn't know Tony well enough at the time. <laughs> Tried. You could have... <laughs> You could have influenced him. Yeah. All right, great. Well, listen, let's move on to the focal point of today's show. Let's talk about, are you ready? Talent. Oh, here we go. Talent Boom. is often defined as a natural aptitude or skill. And I have to say, the thought of talking about talent uh, I'm intrigued to see where this goes, especially with three talented guys like us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, but let's let's kind of dig in on this for a minute. Uh, talent, does it exist? What is it from your perspective? What do we do with it? Uh, I don't think it exists. I, I think it's something people use in a couple of ways to either say, hey, you're pretty good at that, or... To then as an excuse for why I'm not good at that. Hmm. 
I think that's what I see more than anything else. Because if, if you tell a 10-year-old kid who is interested in practice, then he sounds good, hey, you're really talented. That can do one of two things. It can help motivate that kid, which could be a good thing. But it could also tell that kid, oh, I'm talented. I don't have to do anything at all. I can already right. do this. So I don't find it useful in that way. And I don't think there's any way to quantify in any real way that it exists. But so, but don't you think it's possible for someone to be, to be set up with a certain set of skills that will make them, potentially could make them more successful at a certain thing? Maybe, but do you think that's talent or that's well, just luck? No, but I mean, what do we call that? And I know you don't want to, or you actually, maybe you do, you want to draw parallels to the sports thing, uh, right? I, the I, I don't, because when we, when we get into the sports world, like if we talk about, like if I wanted to be an NBA center and I'm six foot three, that's mm -hmm. just not going to happen. You know? Unless you need a double C to be an NBA center. Now we're getting somewhere. Case. Yeah. I hear Shaq has a killer double C. <laughs> now that would be something I'd pay to hear. <laughs> and see. Hey, listen, one of the funniest pictures I ever saw, uh, you guys know, obviously I'm a lifelong Spurs fan, is David Robinson is an, uh, an amateur musician, and there was a profile mm. of him, it might have been in Sports Illustrated, and it had him holding an alto saxophone, but he's like seven feet, seven foot one, so it looks like he's holding a curved soprano, even though he's holding an alto. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, well, so Jim Collins, I, along with what you're saying, you the, the book Good to Great, Jim Collins, um, he, there's, a, there's a statement he makes in there. He says, good is the enemy of great. Oh, absolutely. Great, greatness is a matter of conscious choice. And I think that's, I mean, this is what you're saying, right, with, with a kid who so magically or for whatever reason he's able to do this thing right away, and we praise the talent instead of praising the work ethic. Yes, I think, I, th I think this is the catch, right? Well, I, I think when you praise talent, you're praising something you don't know about. Hmm. Like you don't know how hard someone has worked Work. to get to where they are. I right. imagine that all three of us at some point, someone has referred to, oh, you're just a natural. We've all heard this at one time or another. Right Now, yeah. we've all heard sixth grade trumpet players. None of them sound like professionals. So even if, if one kid happens to have a good sound or another kid happens, his fingers seem to work or another kid can play a G on top of the staff or another kid can play a low G, you know, wherever one starts is in a different place. But getting to a professional level mm. mm -hmm. is not something that I, I don't think anybody is born with that. And I think right. telling people that they're talented um, kind of takes away all that they had to put in to get to a professional level and just dismisses them as like, well, you didn't have to suffer for that or you didn't have to work for that. I think there is a predisposition to um, enjoying the work or tolerating the work. I think Chris Gecker um, once famously said, um, the art of being a great musician is the art of building a tolerance for repetition. Hmm. Um, and, you know, some people, I really enjoy that about practicing is, is that repetition. Um, and I enjoy getting better and finding out a different way to play. Um, and I enjoy watching that happen in my students. But just, you know, sort of that God dropped up some pixie dust on somebody's head and say, you will be a great trumpet player. That, well, that, I don't think that happens. That, that goes along with the, of course, we've talked about the book before for, for a long time, the, the talent code. 
the mm-hmm. Daniel Coyle book. And, you know, he, he is a really entertaining way of explaining the whole thing about the whole talent thing. Is just, It's a lovely thing because it's this magical story that involves magical babies, right? And <laughs> mad, these magical <laughs> babies are born, and then we're led to believe that with some hard work and success that they will excel and that they will be, you know, will reach this goal, but that this talent needs to exist. And, and ultimately, what he, of course, what he finds as he goes out to do research on talent is that it's not born, then now he he still says that there's talent there. He quantifies it or, or codifies it as saying it's talent, but he's not saying it's grown. It's not born. And there's a right? whole bunch of different factors that lead to that environment, but, personal dedication right. and aptitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess what examples, what just call it, Joey, you would just call it skill, right? Like you're, you're not saying it's a talent. You're saying they developed these skills through hard work. And, and people develop them in different ways. I'm not saying there's always one path, and I'm not saying everybody's path is exactly the same. And that's where it gets harder. So, you know, for example, if you take, uh, if you take someone like uh, Shaquille O'Neal, for example, you know, mm-hmm. who, if we're going to go into sports, um, if we look at people who are seven feet tall in the United States, you know, we can find an awful lot of them that are not fundamentally good basketball players that made it to the NBA. So mm-hmm. are they talented? Or they just happen to be tall. So when we're talking about you know trumpet playing, there is no specific body type, you know, that makes you a good trumpet player. No matter what you may read on the internet, right. <laughs> and I have seen all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff. There are people out there that said you have to be, you have to be fat to be a lead player, and then they list a bunch of fat lead players saying, "See, you know," and they, <laughs> right. you know, or you know, you have to be this to be that, and none of it. Or your, your teeth need to be. You guys remember those people that were filing down their teeth in the eighties yeah. and nineties to be able to play high notes? Yeah, all of that is crap. There, none of that has anything to do with how you can play the trumpet. Now, with it, now there could be extremes, uh, and so I'm saying, like you know, if for some reason you have some sort of extreme physical, uh, you know, something out of the norm that precludes you from playing a brass instrument, that could be possible. But that's right. not what's true for a wide and huge majority of the human race. Right. So, then, what would that be? that allows them to happen to play the trumpet well. Well, for one person, it might be they're really, like Brian talks about, they're really good at figuring out this is what it's going to take and doing the repetition and doing the work and putting in that time and figuring it out step by step by step by step by step. Other well, people might be going and saying, huh, I'm going to screw around with this, screw around with this, screw around with this, and they stumble upon things and stumble upon things and stumble upon things. So the root is not the same for every person. Uh, and where everybody starts is not in the same place. Yeah. So people are always looking to try and make order out of chaos. And a lot of how people become professionals, a lot of it is chaos. There are so many variables going on at the time of how much time did you put in, what kind of environment, where are you, who are you sitting next to, uh, what kind of instruction you had, uh, what kind of interest you had, what you're doing in your spare time. There are all of these things going on while you're a kid. Right. Right. That's so exactly. you're going to try and say that the people who came out of that, if you if you took 50 professionals, trumpet players and said, OK, we're going to give you a survey and talk to you about the first five years you play the trumpet. I imagine the most common thing you're going to see is I liked it and I did it a bunch. Another than that, I imagine it would be all over the place. Right. You know, there. If you think about that, I want in the coil book, he talks about these different hotbeds of of talent. Well, hotbeds well, of what people call talent. Yeah, what people call talent, right? Of expertise. Hotbeds of success. Yeah, Russian tennis stars, Dominican baseball players, 
uh, you know, trumpet players from Texas. No offense, Brian. <laughs> um, but Korean, you know, Korean female Korean golfers. Yeah, I mean all these things, but but yet there are people who have managed to rise to the top of their ranks without being from one of those hotbeds. Well, right? and so you're saying that someone puts in the work or puts in the time and manages to do it, or changes changes the model or changes what's possible. Um, and all of a sudden it opens up a world for a whole bunch of people in that area. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, the list goes on and on and in the book, it's pretty, pretty amazing to see the, um, that there were no great female Russian tennis players. And then all of a sudden there was a whole bunch, <laughs> but right. it took one spark, but it all comes mostly comes from one place, one teacher doing one thing. Um, well, exactly. Different. And if that's coming from one teacher, well, if a one teacher is putting out a whole bunch of people, you're you're just saying that person happened to be living where all the talent is. I'm not right. buying that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a thing. <laughs> That's not a thing. Yeah. And and you can see right. where you often see these pockets, and these have been these have come up in other books and other studies where when you see one, you normally see more than one. So are right. you saying that's where talent is, or does that someone raising that bar show you where it is? And like I, you know, I remember being 15, and we've talked about this, and I met Vince DiMartino, and I thought I'm a good high school player. Oh. Now I know where professional is, which I really didn't know. And went, that's where I have to go. And so that raised that bar for me. So for me, instead of thinking, hey, I'm good. I'm better than the guys I'm sitting next to in my high school band. I'm thinking I need to be as good as everybody who's out there working, doing right. stuff, the people I'm listening to on records. And if I can raise that bar, then I can raise that bar for the people who are around me. So even the people who are around me in my high school band who didn't want to be professional trumpet players, I may have been able to raise that bar for them just as amateurs at the time. And then you put that into the kind of, and when you put that into the sports world, like in tennis, where you look at some of the, the factories that have gone on over the past 30 years of producing right. tennis players, yep. their entire schools, you get that one professional, and then there are five right behind them. Right. Right? Yeah, I mean. That's it, not talent. That's teaching and culture. Right. And yeah. that's and of course, this is the next thing that Coyle did. Right. He then he follows with the culture code because that there's a realization there that you do. You can create that culture because and this is the thing that you would just talked about, Vince. We can all probably relate to some point in our life where all suddenly you had a clear vision of what it was supposed to be. Right. You're, right. So here you are being good where you are. Right. And there's the good is the enemy of great because you're thinking that that's enough. And then you fine, see yeah. someone, you become aware of something that's that next level. And then you chase that down. Right. And, and the problem is, is that now I'm old and I'm still chasing it down as Vince <laughs> is still out there in front of us. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. But see, that proves my point that there is no talent. If you can go out there and create a culture, raise that and raise that bar and mm -hmm. then produce whatever, you know, great is, that's, you don't, that would also, if talent is a real thing, it would require that the people you're teaching are talented or that couldn't be done. Mm -hmm. And it's done all of the time. Right. So when you look, I mean, you know, when you look at where, you know, triple players come from all over the place, right? Right. And they're and they're great trumpet players that come from everywhere, everywhere in the country. Um, but when you look at what schools end up producing more of them, that's probably just because that has historically been a place for good schools. They've created a culture that then attracts those students and then allows them to get there. Right. So when yeah, you I mean, look at that. 
We can do that with a number of universities, right? I mean, a number of universities are known for specific things. Absolutely. The, the strength of a specific program. Right? And, you know, when we're growing up, you know, it's like, well, that town always has great trumpet players or this. And who knows why, right? Because maybe there's a teacher there. Or like you're saying, this one student had success years ago and sparked a whole bunch of others to follow in their, mm-hmm. in their footsteps, you know. But it is something we think about that way. And then you think you try to trace that back and figure, well, that's where just all the great people went. But it isn't right. about, you know, it's, it's about that more about the culture than it is about any skills they happen to be born with. Right. Right. And if you can create that culture as a teacher of even, you know, whether you're teaching at a university like we are or you're a band director and you can teach that, create that culture of it's going to be great, raising that musical bar then you're going to have success. Then we see this with band directors all the time. We grew up, you know, I grew up in a very successful band program. It's not an accident. They got band directors who knew how to do this and they Mm -hmm. didn't happen to have, oh, they just always get all the great players. Well, no, they've created a system that helps people rise to that and become great players. Okay. Yeah. How, so in, in this same discussion, how does the idea of passion for something fit into it from your perspective? You know, if someone is passionate about, I mean, and we know, and there's a book about this, right? So uh, talent's never enough, right? We got that, and we have mm-hmm. the talent code, and we said, and everybody's kind of de- determining the same thing. But, but in a sense, you, you do, and this is, the, this is the myth we're told, right? So you're born with these natural gifts. You have a passion for you. Apply your passion, and you work hard, and you'll have success. How important is that in the mix? It can be important. Uh, I, I think passion can keep you interested, you know, but there, I think there are lots of people out there. Well, I don't think there are lots of people out there that either grew up in an environment where they were supposed to do something. Let's just take trumpet, for example. Right. So they did it and they got really, really good at it. And then eventually they hit a point of going, Ugh. you know, right. no, and this is the hard part. And I've talked to my students about this all the time. For every dream job you can think of, there is someone in that job thinking, Ugh, this is just my day gig until I can do what I want. <laughs> Now, right. that's not us, <laughs> yeah. right? but there are people that have jobs just like ours, teaching trumpet at universities, you know, and, and, and working with students just like we do, and we love our jobs. There are other people doing this exact same job thinking, all right, if I can just get to the weekend, I can get out of my boat, right? Right. right? And this right. is true of major symphony orchestras. This is true of guys sitting in studios. This is guys sitting, you know, per- people performing all over the world. So that passion I don't think is necessary, as I think a lot of people can just stumble into, hey, I started off, and people always tell me I was pretty good, so I kind of kept practicing, and I want a job. Huh. That does happen. And right. then, and so that's no guarantee. What I tell my students is this. Listen, it, it requires a certain amount of work. And if you're not willing to do that work or you don't want to do that work, then you should go do something else, right? Because it is a certain amount of work, and it's a certain amount of work forever. And you right. have to keep doing that. And then the people that do that, that just gives you a chance at success. There's no guarantee of success, right? right? It, we're in a highly competitive field. That's just your best shot. But uh, I think the passion, I think you, in an ideal world, uh, you should do something that you're passionate about so that then you can be happier in your profession. Right. Yeah, I think passion takes, like in this instance, in this use, just takes a knock sometimes because it's like, it's one of the, oh, that's great, you're passionate about it, but you're not getting any better at it or, you know what I mean, <laughs> right. whatever. But but I think you there has to be that. This is this goes back to the conversation that's been such a part of what we're all going through right now is how people find the motivation to keep moving forward to do something. Well, 
if you have a vision for what what it is you want to be, whether or not you think you have talent or you don't, or we're considering, you know, however you use that terminology, um, you you have to have something about which you're passionate so that you have motivation, intrinsic motivation to move forward, right? So I, I don't know. For me, it's an important part of it. I like to know that a student has a, you know, has a love for what they do and has a passion for what they do. That gets me to this. I've heard a number of times over the past several decades that musicians say, if you can think of anything else that you would rather go do, you should just go do that. And mm. every time, I, actually in the last 10 years, every time I've heard that, I said, I need to stop you. I just think that's crap. Because I think there could have been a few other things that I like and I'm interested in. I just like playing trumpet better. So I right. thought, I want to do this. Now, I don't think that's a lack of passion. I, you know, so uh, I agree that you should do something that you're passionate about and it should spur you because it can keep you moving forward and keep your growth going. Right. But the, I, you know, th there seems to be, at least among musicians, the ideal that this has to be it. You can't have anything else. If there's anything else, go do the something else and do this in your spare time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Hmm. I just like this. Can't I do this and have other interests? That seems reasonable. Right. I'm still practicing and I'm still interested. I still want to grow. So right. I want to make sure that we at least, you know, are covering the, the, the nuance of that as well. You know, Brian, some level of passion is, is required, is necessary, but it certainly isn't sufficient. Oh, no. No. Absolutely. It can't be the whole story. Isn't it hard to get a word in edgewise with Brian here, isn't it? I know, Brian. It, listen, stop talking. But no, you're exactly right. The idea that you're right. There are lots of people who are extremely passionate, and that's all. They don't seem to have figured out how to apply that passion in any reasonable way, and then they just don't get better. And this gets me back to where we started, where when people say a lot of the times they, the word talent is used as a reason that I'm not good. I mean, well, that mm. person's just, they are just talented, and that's an excuse for why I didn't make it or I didn't go. Right. And that, that part, and, and that's where it gets to, because I might, I love this more than anything, so I should be great at it. That's, a, that's just two meaningless statements. That doesn't make any sense. And what do we say to teachers who say, well, that student just won't ever understand. They just won't ever get it. Because they they're don't bad have the teachers. Talented. Yeah, right? Yeah. 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 There's got to be another way in. You've got to figure out another way. It's your, it's your calling as the teacher. You have to do that. Yes, our job as teachers is if a student is interested, if they're doing the work to do everything we can to help them get where they're going. And this is, I mean, one of the reasons I, that I enjoy this topic and glad you're talking about it because is if we do have some public school teachers in particular have these students who are interested in pursuing this at the undergraduate level and making their career, those students often are the ones that have presented or do present as being the most talented that they have. Yep. And I think it's important to develop uh, a set of guidelines for themselves as teachers to say, how am I going to deal with a talented student? Don't default to rewarding the talent, right? Find a way to reward the work ethic. Put something in front of them that moves them to reward the advancement. This grew this week. That got better. Now do this. You know, we, we yeah, okay, sure. You, you're pretty good at this so far. This seems to be easy for you, but now let's, let's move it ahead. And I think... I went back to when I was teaching public school. I don't know that I would have would have thought to do that. I would have thought, well, this is great. I mean, how lucky that this trombone player plays this well. This is awesome. Right? <laughs> or you, just, you, turn your you turn your energies to something else because you know that that principal trombone player is going to be fine. 
Right. I don't need to worry about what they're doing. It's going to be great. And so I will do this. Well, and for some teachers, so let's say trombone is not your major instrument, and that student probably plays better than you do <laughs> since that's your secondary instrument. But there are other things to address here, especially if you have a student who presents as being talented, right? That means that they are go with that word for just a minute, if that's the way you're perceiving that they have a talent, that means that they are going to pursue this and they have decided to chase it down. There's a whole bunch of other things they need to know, right? There are a whole bunch of other things that student, that you could equip that student with to help them be successful about practice habits, about work ethic, who to listen to, and, and all of those things, and making them aware of different performers and players and techniques. There's a lot to that that could be shared with a student, even if it's not your major instrument, Right, you could. There are still a. There's a lot of information to be delivered there that could be helpful. That should be not just that could be should be right. shared with this student, especially if you're thinking about you know the high school band director model, which is right. <clears throat> you're going to have students. I mean, a majority of your students are not going to go into music as a profession, right? So for those few that are, they're often going to be the ones that again, like you're saying, you guys you don't have to worry about. That kid's going to be fine. But if that kid's looking to be a professional musician, that kid is the one you should also be making sure mm -hmm. is getting, making sure pointing them in every direction you can to give them more and more and more and more. Otherwise, when they graduate, they might be a good high school player, right. but still not ready even to go to college to be a, a you know an actual music major. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There's a lot there, but I, in some ways, you know, teachers always hope for those kinds of kids, right? How great would it be to be just the stables are loaded with these kind of kids, but then do you really know what to do when they get right. there? Right, <laughs> you don't know what to do. You know, oh my gosh, what do I teach? <laughs> what do I do? How do I? You know, um, I do this with this, the brass ped that I class that I teach for band directors at Messiah. So in our in our grad program, so I play a recording of a developing trumpet player. Right, everybody has an opinion. Oh, well, this is oh, we can fix that. And oh, this, okay, great. Here's another one. It's a little better. Oh, fewer things to say. Right. Right. All right, now, here's an advanced undergraduate student, right, without knowing what it is, playing the Peskin, for example, and you just get this, <laughs> you know, kind of glazed over like, oh, that's really good. Right, and really good's okay, and it's okay to see it's really good, but, and I understand you're just listening to a recording, what kind of commentary, but there's always something musical that you could comment on, whether it's you're affirming, you're guiding it in a different way. But I think it's good just to think about it ahead of time, right? We're always aiming at the middle, aren't we? We're going to cater to the middle, right? <laughs> no, the, no. But I'm saying this is what happens. You aim at the middle, cater those students, and you pick up the stragglers and the outliers and all that. But those <laughs> students who present that way need attention. Right, but yes. see, this is, the, this is the problem with music education. This is right. a huge problem in music education. Every study done on education in general says the same thing. Teach to the front of the class, and right. it will pull the entire class with you. If right. you try what and really wait, happens... Uh, but I'm saying no. in a classroom situation, if you actually do this, it works, right? right? So if you think about if you're teaching a math class and, you, you know, you have 25 students in your room and student 22, 3, 4, and 5 may not totally grasp this. If you wait until they grasp everything before moving on, you lose the rest of your class. You yep. have to teach the rest. And over the course of the year, they will assimilate more information and grab more. So when we get to music, guess yep. what happens? Band directors spend all of that time, not every band director, but there, there's much more of a culture of making sure everyone gets it before moving on, which is really bad fundamental education. It's bad yeah. pedagogy. You should be teaching to the strongest players in that room 
And that's one, going to raise that bar. Two, going to create that culture of, hey, we're going we're gonna to go after this, we're going to go after this, and then we're moving on, and we're going to cover right. more stuff. And three, it's going to keep those really interested kids still interested. And those are your right. kids who might be your potential music majors who need it the most. And th this is the model in our discipline, right? This is why we have principal players. It's right there in the room, right? <laughs> you, yes. you have to explain a lot less when you could just go, did you hear that? Yeah, do that. Right. I mean, here's a here's a great model of musicianship or phrasing or artistry, whatever you whatever you want to call it, it right in the room. So teaching to that, you know, right. Teach, that, teach to the front of the class and, and bring everybody and your bands will sound better. Your groups will sound better. You got to keep moving because otherwise and I'm sure we've all been in rehearsals where, oh, all right, we're spending time with the third clarinets now. Great. Again. <sighs> fourth rehearsal in a row and then yeah. you, you know you just you're just you're completely dis dis uh, disassociated with the entire rehearsal you're just checked out at that point so what you're saying is hope that you have talented kids and then ignore them because <laughs> <laughs> they're going to be fine on their own teach to the middle yeah and then now we're getting somewhere in fact now. teach to the bottom make sure bring the bottom sure. up don't worry about the top yeah the top will be fine chances are you don't know what to say to them anyway Right, but this is this right. is what happens a lot in bands. I, I watch sure. and I, I see people, you know, make sure I got to make sure everybody everybody knows everything, which is why I believe middle school band director is the hardest job in oh, music. I know some people will say like yep. you know playing principal oboe in a major symphony orchestra. I'm like no 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 yeah. beginning band director. There is no harder job because you have a room full of people none of whom have any idea what to do, and you got to keep them all on the same page, going the same direction. If you can do that, it's like magic. Yeah. I, I remember looking at um, what, looking for all the Daniel Coyle stuff I could find. I'm going to go back to that for a minute. And he, he did this example on a TED Talk where he put up two lists of words. And on, on the one side, they were missing letters, right? And he held it up for a certain amount of time on the screen and then took it down. Okay, the audience remembered more of the words with missing letters than they <laughs> did of the words that were intact. And why is that? Because they had to work for it. Their brain had to reach to put that letter in the right place. It was like bread and butter, except it was bread and the U was missing, right? <laughs> so then they had to, you've had to fight for every word. And because you fought for it and because you worked for it, you got it. And this is the idea of that you reach and you, and you fail and you fix, and you know, and you just keep going after it. And that's the process, right? You, and like Brian, you were saying a little bit ago about the, you know, the embracing repetition, which is, that's a Suzuki thing, right? Like they celebrate yeah. you for a hundred days of practice, you know, which is a real thing. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> let me clarify. That's hundred days of practice in a row. It's in a row. Uh, that seems like not that's, a thing. That's not an expectation. That's I something you're to supposed celebrate? to st stop after three days. I think it's just a matter of the clarification. <laughs> the rest of the day. It was semantics <laughs> wow <laughs> so but there's a celebration for that in that culture of right the suzuki culture of repetition embracing it and struggling you know well right and this is sometimes the hard part uh i know i have in my teaching when, when students i'm saying okay we're gonna need to practice these fundamentals do you have your clark book oh yeah mm. I, I used to do those <laughs> and i say you, you used to do those well, all yeah, four of them you know <laughs> And, and we'll get them out and I'll say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And they're like, oh, well, how long do you do this? And I said, well, forever. Like this, this, maybe not this exercise, maybe not exactly this way, but this concept that you're practicing this concept 
is daily and is looking for that perpetual growth. And if you're talking about teaching kids, yes, you got to put them out there and say, here's what I expect from you. And then as they reach it, keep raising that bar. Absolutely. Because right. you know, what we're talking about is, especially when you see a talented kid, and mm. what happens? Yeah, we'll just ignore him because he's going to be fine. That What that doing is potentially stunting that growth. Now, some kids are just going to do it on their own, but some kids aren't. And if we're thinking of ourselves as, teacher, well, as teachers, we want to offer the most growth to the most students. Right. We want to make this available yeah. to everyone. Absolutely. You mean, so I think what you're saying is it'd be best to not use the word at all. Yes. Right. But if we had to categorize that um, exceptionally skilled student or advanced student or we don't even want to say that they're a gifted student in music because all of those things were we're kind of we're kind of making the same problem right we're putting them in their own category which says that they don't have to do the same thing as everyone else or that they can back off because they've already arrived right right why yeah. would you separate them out if yeah. we're going to go into sports this is uh, where being a spurs fan comes in really handy if you watch the spurs get good when david robinson joined the team Right. And, and then Greg Popovich became the coach. And a lot of times in sports, the tail can wag the dog. Right. The players sometimes have a lot more leverage in who's coaching the team than the coaches do. Mm. Right. So players can often get uh, because of all kinds of factors, get coaches fired. But so Popovich comes in and David Robinson listens to him and he yells and screams at him the same way he does. And then Tim Duncan comes in and the same thing. And Tony Parker comes in and the same thing. When you watched the superstar on the team listen to the head coach who is not treating them differently. Mm. Now that's not universal because if you remember Jimmy Johnson right. back, back with the Dallas Cowboys, when he, they were, he suspended a player at one point and they said, well, what happens, you know, if, uh, if Emmett Smith does this? And he says, well, I mean, you know, that's not the same thing. <laughs> you know, not everybody's on the same set of rules. And when you create an environment like that, it's a bad environment. So, right. You want to treat everyone Equitably, they are all the, if they're all in the same team, if they're all in your ensemble, then they all have to do those same things. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I, when we first thought about, um, you know, talking about the talent thing, and I thought we might end up disagreeing. This might be the first time we actually really disagree on a major topic. But, you know, once again, we brought this around to where we're, we're saying the same thing, that it, it can be that label um, can create more problems than, you know, then, then it does well, good. Well, of course, because there's no way to prove what it is. I think right. that's why the, that's why I have such a problem with it. Is, is as soon as you say it, and I say, "What does that mean?" You say, "Oh, that kid's so talented." In what way? Right. Well, they play great. Do you have any idea how hard they've worked or what they've done? Well, no. But listen to them; they sound great. Well, so you don't know what talent they must be means. Talented, yeah. They must yeah, they, be talented. Yeah. So, because the idea that every professional musician happens to be talented. If talent exists, that can't be true. Right. That only that's the only way to get through. So, and it also means that there are professional musicians out, the potential professional musicians out there that just never picked up a trumpet. And boy, had they, they could have been the best thing that ever happened. But they missed out. There's somebody walking around right now, who is the next Maurice Andre that just didn't bother picking up a trumpet, and we've all lost out because of that. See, I don't right. believe that. Hmm. That doesn't make any <laughs> logical sense to me at all. That puts a bow on it nicely. <laughs> it really does. That's great. 
Finally, we reach the portion of the program we like to call No Offense. This is where we highlight something from the trumpet kingdom that is recognized, used, and touted, yet may, might not make so much sense to us. We feel it's our responsibility and our duty to highlight such things to raise awareness, inform the masses, and generally start trouble. Assigning the Haydn Trumpet Concerto for a high school audition, knowing that the students are going to play it on B-flat trumpet, I think is absolutely ridiculous, inappropriate, and un-American. No offense. Boys, what do you got? Wow. I will say a majority of the time, I absolutely agree with you. We hear these on college auditions, and I will usually get to, by the bottom of the first, first page, I will be thinking... I don't believe this student can play a high E flat. Why did they choose this piece? On their B flat trumpet. Right. B flat trumpet. Well, I don't mind it on the B flat trumpet. Uh, uh, Gil Johnson was a, a big proponent of playing this solo on the B flat trumpet. So I think it is worth learning on the B flat trumpet. I think it's useful and it's good. There are some things in there. Learning how to articulate in the upper register, no offense, Bill, is what? good. You know, and, but being able to play it that way is good. But boy, if you're 17 years old and you, have, you struggle above high C, why would you highlight that in an audition piece? I absolutely yeah. agree with you. Uh, for me, I think it, well, first of all, it's really awkward on that horn, but I do see the value in being able to move through a lot of that stuff and playing on the B-flat trumpet. I do. Except that my problem is when you assign that as the audition piece, especially for students who aren't taking private lessons and who are coming to this on their own, they're going to work and isolate one thing, and that's getting the E-flat. That's going to be their primary objective. <laughs> then why do more of them not get it? Right. Well, because they go at it from an informed, because they don't have enough talent. That's why. No. Um, wow. Yeah. So, but they go after that E-flat. So they learn to do it incorrectly to the, much to the detriment of the rest of their playing. And I'll go one step further. It's testing for the wrong thing. So, like, if you have an all-state audition, right, and you use the Haydn, and, and you're going to go after that to see which student can play the E-flat, it might be great that that student has the E-flat. Is that the same student you want playing the, playing the, the cornet solo in the second movement of Lincolnshire Posey? <laughs> Probably not. Right. On her, on, on her A, A, 14A4A? On her 14A4A, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? She will be heard. Well, it's also, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that solo asked on most... German orchestra auditions? Uh, some Americans on, as on well. On B-flat? Yeah. They ask for it, it on B-flat. They ask for it on B-flat. I mean, that should tell you what a, a demanding piece it would be for a young player. Um, I will say that the exposition of each of the those movements in the Haydn was the entrance audition to get into the top band at my high school coming mm. out of, so coming out of ninth grade. You had to play the exposition of each of the movements. This could be a, a, a band director problem of if you don't play trumpet, what's the piece you know for trumpet solo? Well, oh, I know the Haydn trumpet concerto. Well, there it is. Yeah. So it could just be that, which is, I mean, if you ask any trumpet player, hey, I'm going to audition my high school band, should I use the first movement of the Haydn? I would imagine most trumpet players would say, no. <laughs> Why would you do that? You're going to have a hard time separating people out because most of them aren't going to be able to play it at all. Yeah, I mean, I've seen high school audition lists with the Artunian on it and a rotation that includes like Haydn, uh, Artunian, you know, uh, that's those are those and are big, and yeah, and Hindemith, yeah. <laughs> well, it is a B flat trumpet piece, but I mean, the, I think those are big asks, you know. 
They're absolutely um, big asks. And yeah. I just don't I just don't think that you know again, I'm looking at care and feeding of the student. You know that student's going to focus on that thing. So what what I've tried to do here in in my neck of the woods of Pennsylvania is shift the thinking from solos, which they're not going to play with piano anyway, right? In an audition process and shifted us to etudes. Yes. So sometimes we do pairs of etudes like they do in Texas. So you get uh, part of an Arban characteristic study and a Conconi lyrical study paired together, right? Something like that. So you get to hear some lyrical stuff and technical stuff. And now when you do that, the student also had to buy the book, which means they might actually read on and look at some other etudes that would be meaningful and helpful to them rather and than this, just sheet music of one. And this gets etudes. us to where etudes are so valuable because etudes are the place where we're responsible for a hundred percent of the music when you're learning solos you're playing you know part of the music so i'm going to play this eight bars and then i've got five bars rest do i count this through or do i wait or what do i do do i you know we tell people listen here you know hear the accompaniment yeah. and you're here yeah, you're, the other you're part. accompanying the piano yeah right so but with etudes that's everything you really right. need to make all of that music and and we can do that with one person and we can really uh, stress the importance of that with students and saying okay listen this is all there is to this piece of music is this etude and you're responsible for all of it so if you don't show us this it doesn't get shown in any other way and there's not large portions of rest that just take you right out of the music as well yeah yeah cool so i'm not crazy for oh for not for this there no, are other I, things I, you're crazy for but not for this I, <laughs> I hear it on college auditions every year, and these are students that are thinking, you know, I want to play trumpet and be a, a music major. Before I, and I think this is just you're highlighting all of the things you do poorly, which is just a bad thing to do in an audition. Yeah, I'd and much they, rather hear a, a, a you know student come in and sound really really strong on some very good etudes, and then, and then sound mediocre to bad on a solo. Yeah, on the wrong horn. I'm not convinced it's the wrong horn. <laughs> I do I like it on the B flat trumpet. I was going to try to throw that one by. Yeah, because <laughs> I'll tell you what, the the second movement actually sits really well on B flat trumpet. Yeah. I know. Hey, I've got a great recording I'll send you. Of who's the, who's playing I'd like that recording? I'd like to recommend for the second movement. Yeah, who's who's <laughs> recording fact, is this that? Great, it's a great recording. It's all second movements. If you're ever looking for, <laughs> I'll, I'll send it to you. What's Can the title of that CD? What's the title of that? A matter of seconds. A matter of seconds. That's there, the public title. Is there any way to stay awake to listen to the whole thing all the way no. through? No. <laughs> I don't put it on in your car. It's not. I wouldn't no, do that. Not possible. That. Not possible. Do not operate heavy machinery <laughs> while listening to this recording. <laughs> That's great. Wow. And that about does it for today. Thanks for joining us on The Open Bell. Stay tuned, subscribe, or whatever works for you. We appreciate your patronage, and so do our sponsors, who have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. So long for now. Remember to keep an open mind, but more importantly, an open bell. <laughs>